Today on Against the Grain, many are the names forgotten to history of people who fought to transform our world for the better. One of them was Benjamin Lay, a trailblazing figure who opposed slavery and devoted his life to forcing his fellow Quakers to end their complicity in the enslavement of others. Historian Marcus Redeker seeks to rescue a revolutionary figure who speaks to us across the ages. From the studios of KPFA in Berkeley, California, this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. Almost 300 years ago, a man called Benjamin Lay single-mindedly set about to oppose the evil of slavery in his community, that of the Quakers, who professed pacifism and humanism. He was scorned and ridiculed, but at the end of his life, he started to shift opinions in the Quaker ranks. And following his death, a widespread movement for abolition flowered. In his book, The Fearless Benjamin Lay, the Quaker Dwarf Who Became the First Revolutionary Abolitionist, Marcus Redeker aims to put this militant figure back into the central role he played in the struggle against slavery. That book was the basis for a graphic novel by David Lester, Profit Against Slavery, both of which are published by Beacon Press. Marcus Redeker is a distinguished professor of Atlantic history at the University of Pittsburgh. Marcus, Benjamin Lay was born in Essex, England in 1682 to a family of Quakers. Before we discuss his life, can you remind us of the revolutionary upheavals and movements in England that briefly turned the world upside down? Yes, you're talking about the uh, English Revolution, which uh, broke out in 1649 between the Royalists uh, supporting the King and a parliamentary army led by Oliver Cromwell. And within this movement, uh, what's really crucial is that there were a great many radical groups that seized the moment when royal censorship broke down and published a stunning array of uh, revolutionary ideas. I'm talking here about the levelers, the diggers, the ranters, the seekers, and the Quakers. The Quakers have their origin in this extremely radical time. Uh, the ideas that were advanced were, uh, were many. There was a critique of patriarchy. There was a critique of slavery. There was a critique of wage labor. There were proposals to return the common lands to the people who had once uh, owned and farmed them. Uh, and within this uh, extraordinary efflorescence of radical ideas, uh, we find in many ways the beginnings of Benjamin Lay, because he was part leveler, part ranter, part digger, part seeker, and all Quaker. Well, tell us more about the Quakers and their origins in this radical period. The Quakers are of an extremely important and interesting group, and they were actually much more radical in their origins than many people uh, realize today. Uh, there were two leaders of the early movement. Uh, there was George Fox, who is very well known, but another man named James Naylor, who is not. Naylor was one of the most radical Quakers, and he performed extravagant street theater. Uh, he was a, a leader in the denial of deference. Uh, Quakers refused to take off their hats to their so-called social superiors. Uh, they like to call people brother. They, they like to level hierarchies. Uh, the Quakers were very much part of this. Now, uh, the Quakers will become more conservative after 1660, but there is this uh, latent and very radical uh, subterranean portion of Quaker history, and that is exactly what Benjamin Lay taps into a generation later. Tell us about Benjamin Lay's childhood. What was his background? Benjamin was born in, uh, as you said, in Essex, England, a little village called Copford to a modest uh, farm family. Uh, he was a third-generation Quaker. His grandparents had converted to the cause, and both his mother and father were active Quakers. 
Uh, as, a, as a child, Benjamin uh, worked as a shepherd uh, and uh, he imbibed in various ways this kind of radical Quaker tradition which will then become the central idea of his entire life. He was born after the period of the most intense upheavals of the English Revolution, as you were describing. To what degree do you think he would have been aware of the struggles against enclosure and exploitation that were very much part of the movements of the time? Benjamin was very well aware of previous struggles, both within the Quaker faith and in and around uh, Copford near Colchester in Essex, where there was also a lively history of opposing enclosure, of uh, striking against wage rates, and many other kinds of popular resistance. So in many ways, this was kind of the, the hothouse into which Benjamin was born. He would embrace many of these ideas and then actually carry them much further by attaching them to the struggle against slavery around the Atlantic. As a young man, Benjamin Lay ended up as a sailor, and I wanted to ask you about that, but before I do, you've written a great deal about seafaring and the collective politics of those who take to the high seas. Can you tell us about that, what is particularly significant and was at that period about those sailors and others who took to the seas? Sasha, the ship, the deep sea sailing ship, was probably the most important machine of the uh, 17th and 18th century. Uh, it was crucial to the rise of capitalism because it was the labor of sailors which connected the continents of the world and essentially created the world market. Sailors were on the cutting edge of this new relationship between capital and wage labor. And as such, they developed an array of practices of resistance, including, by the way, the strike. Uh, the strike emerges from 1768 in London when sailors went around from vessel to vessel during a wage dispute striking the sails of the ships uh, and preventing their movement, and therein lay the birth of this practice, the strike. So sailors are a rowdy and very rebellious group of uh, wage laborers in the global economy, and their traditions of resistance uh, are very important, and they will in the end make a difference to Benjamin Lay as well. How did Benjamin Lay end up as a sailor, and where did it take him? Benjamin uh, left home, left Copford, uh, when he turned 21, when he actually reached his majority, as they said back then, uh, and took off for London. Uh, he, was, uh, he did this even though he was in line to inherit the family farm, which is what most people would have preferred to do. But Benjamin had an active intellectual life. He wanted to see the world, so he went to uh, London. Uh, he was able to sign on uh, aboard a vessel and begin his travels around the Atlantic and to the Mediterranean. So one of the important things about Benjamin Lay was that uh, from a very early age, he had the cosmopolitanism of the sailor. He had been around the world. He had seen how people lived in different places. And this became a big part of his authority in uh, telling the tales that he wanted to tell about slavery later in life. How long was he a sailor, and why did he end up returning to England? We don't have precise evidence on this, Sasha, but it seems that he was at sea for uh, at least 12 years and maybe as many as 14. Uh, now, it was not uncommon in those days for sailors to want to leave the sea if they could find a decent job on land. Uh, Benjamin did that, but I think the, the truly precipitating event was that he met a woman named Sarah Smith. Uh, he fell in love with Sarah. He met her at a Quaker meeting in Deptford, right on the River Thames. That was a sailor town. Uh, Benjamin was probably there because of his, some sailing schedule he was on. Uh, he uh, fell in love with Sarah. Uh, he wanted to marry her, and at that time, he left the sea. 
how common was it for women within the Quaker faith to to preach as Benjamin Lay's wife, Sarah Smith, did? Quakers were extremely progressive on issues of gender. Quaker women uh, played very important parts uh, within the Quaker faith. Uh, Quaker women will, in the 18th and 19th centuries, become very important activists in a variety of causes, from women's rights to anti-slavery. Uh, and Sarah was, in many ways, a prototype. Uh, she was a powerful spiritual person. She was part of a network of Quaker women, and it was actually that network which uh, operated in a way to entice Sarah and Benjamin to move from Essex to Philadelphia in 1732. Uh, we also uh, know about Sarah that she was also a committed abolitionist. Uh, we don't know nearly as much about her, but we know that uh, and partly that's because she predeceased Benjamin by uh, 24 years. Uh, so we, we, we don't know a lot about her, but we do know that she was quite a powerhouse. Uh, and she was, like Benjamin, someone with dwarfism uh, and uh, with a hunchback. So they both would have been considered uh, uh, disabled, we might say, by today's standards. But... Uh, it certainly did not seem to affect uh, their power as activists in good causes. Benjamin Lay and his wife Sarah went to Barbados. Do we know what motivated them to go there and tell us what they experienced in Barbados? Benjamin and Sarah decided to go to Barbados in 1718, and the main reason for this is that Benjamin was already getting in trouble with the London Quakers. Benjamin was a very outspoken critic, especially of wealthy Quakers who he thought were degrading uh, the Quaker faith. Uh, he got into trouble and he was actually being threatened with disownment. So he decided to, uh, to go to sea, to go to Barbados, and when there, he and Sarah opened a little shop on the waterfront. This is a very common thing for sailors to do, and he would sell everyday items. But I think Benjamin didn't fully understand at the time that he was going into what was uh, perhaps the leading slave society in the world and one of the most violent. So over the next year and a half, Benjamin and Sarah experienced a, you might call it a horror show uh, of violence against enslaved people. Uh, a lot of enslaved people came into their little shop. Uh, Benjamin and Sarah saw people fainting from hunger. They saw people being lashed and tortured. Uh, and this was very, very disturbing to both of them. Uh, so they began to, uh, you might say, become the pastors of a group of enslaved people by feeding them on Sundays, holding meetings uh, after the Quaker meeting. Word got out about this, and hundreds of uh, uh, enslaved people began to show up at these meetings. And it's also true that Benjamin began to denounce the slave system that oppressed them. This caught the attention of the leaders of Barbados, the sugar planters, uh, and they began to threaten Benjamin and Sarah with deportation. Uh, Benjamin and Sarah ended up leaving in 1720 and going back uh, to London, but they did so having been permanently changed by their experience of slavery. And Benjamin did write later in his life, that was the moment that I became an abolitionist, when I saw what slavery really meant in human terms. You have described how Quakers came out of a particular radical time and place, and there were many traditions that persisted that were steeped in that radicalism. But I wonder if you could tell us about the role of Quakers, if one can generalize, or at least of wealthy Quakers, within emergent capitalism, um, both in England and more globally. There is a saying that actually Quakers today use. They say, uh, Quakers came to America to do good, and instead they did well. And by that they mean that Quakers actually grew wealthy off of Atlantic commerce 
And in Philadelphia, especially, they grew wealthy off the connections to the Caribbean slave economy. This is a very important thing. Uh, and wealthy Quakers did what most all other wealthy people did in this time period. They bought slaves. So when Benjamin and Sarah arrived in Philadelphia in 1732, thinking that, you know, this is, this is really going to be a place where peace and justice prevailed. This is the Quaker colony. Uh, Benjamin was shocked and angered to see that one person out of ten in Philadelphia was enslaved and that Quakers owned a very significant number of these bondsmen and women. So this was, a, this was a shock, and he set his mind to, uh, to agitating and organizing to stop these wealthy Quakers from corrupting the faith and destroying society. Remind us of the Quaker origins of Pennsylvania. And uh, you've just mentioned the disillusionment by Benjamin Lay and his wife Sarah when they, they saw the reality. But what had been the, the promise of Pennsylvania? Pennsylvania was actually the result of a land grant that King Charles II gave to the Penn family. He, he didn't do it out of uh, uh, altruism. He did it because he owed them a lot of money. They had, uh, they had basically financed uh, some of his operations. So uh, this very large tract of land was set aside for the Penn family, and so it means, you know, Pennsylvania means uh, the woods of the Penn family. Uh, and the idea was to create a, an open, liberal, tolerant society where people like Quakers and any other kind of religious faith would not be persecuted in the ways that they had been in England. Because let's, let's remember that after 1660, when King Charles II came back to the throne, Quakers were quite viciously persecuted. Many of them ended up in prison. So there is this history of oppression, of religious oppression, and this made Quakers very eager to have their own place, to have uh, their own colony, you might say. So this is really the, the origin. Uh, it is also true that the uh, William Penn government concluded treaties with the indigenous people of the region. They, they were settler colonists, to be sure, but they did operate by treaty, and I think it was Voltaire who noted that this may have been the only treaty made with Native American people that was never broken. So this, this new colony is set up, uh, but it turns out that it is corrupted fairly quickly. Uh, by wealth, and Benjamin was keenly aware of this. Historian Marcus Rediger is my guest. We're talking about his book, The Fearless Benjamin Lay, the Quaker Dwarf Who Became the First Revolutionary Abolitionist. That's published by Beacon Press, and Beacon has also recently published a graphic novel written by and drawn by David Lester in collaboration with Marcus Rediger called Profit Against Slavery. I'm Sasha Lilly and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. So when Benjamin Lay arrives in Pennsylvania, he confronts the Quaker establishment in a way he has done in England before that about their involvement in slavery. What contradictions did he point out in particularly criticizing them as Quakers? Well, let, let me say to begin, Sasha, that, that Benjamin loved Quakerism. He was very devoted to its cause, especially to its central tenet of spiritual equality. And Benjamin thought that the uh, holding of slaves by Quaker Quakers was a violation of one of the central truths of their religion. Uh, Quakers liked to uh, cite the golden rule. Do as to others as you would have them do unto you. Benjamin and lots of other people, increasingly in the 18th and 19th century, will latch on to this phrase and say to slave owners, as Benjamin said to Quaker slave owners, would you want to be a slave? Of course you wouldn't. Therefore, you must not treat other people in this way. So Benjamin, uh, along with, a, at first, a very small number of other Quakers, 
launched this campaign to try to make Quakers live up to their own professed ideals. How unusual was that at that moment? And I'm not just meaning with Quakers, but for people of conscience to speak up against slavery. It, it was not common. Now, we have to always begin, Sasha, with uh, a, a fundamental fact that the first abolitionists are always the enslaved people themselves. And I think this is, this is really crucial. I think Benjamin recognized this. Uh, but the Europeans who talked about slavery, really up until Benjamin Lay and uh, a group of more radical abolitionists in the 1730s, what they usually said and what George Fox actually said when he visited Barbados in the 1670s was, don't mistreat the slaves. Don't mistreat them. Treat them well. Treat them better. Benjamin said, no, no. Don't treat them better. Free them. Emancipate them. That's the only way out of this dilemma. It's not about having slaves and treating them better. Possessing slaves is wrong. It's evil. It's a sin. It's a violation of Quaker belief. So this was his much more radical approach, and it was extremely unusual. And, and let me also mention, Sasha, that it made him a lot of enemies because he was totally uncompromising on this point. And the Quaker slave owners in the, in the uh, Philadelphia region, they really despised Benjamin. I mean, they, they disowned him. Uh, they did everything they could to, to quiet him to prevent him from spreading this message. But despite that repression, he begins to win. More and more rank-and-file Quakers began to agree with him. And so you see this incipient movement that's beginning to form. Well, let's talk about how he tried to shift, how Quakers saw slavery. Tell us about this notion that he held of radical free speech. One of the surprising things I learned in the course of studying Benjamin Lay was that uh, he, he, he was quite a, a powerful mind, but the sources of his radicalism were numerous. And we've actually already talked about seafaring as one, uh, the experience of the struggles of the enslaved people of Barbados, that's another radical Quakerism, going back to the English Revolution, that's a third. But there's a fourth, which is that Benjamin read classical philosophy from ancient Greece and was very interested in a group of thinkers called the Cynics, who were epitomized by Diogenes. They uh, were very radical critics of Greek society, especially its wealth and corruption. Uh, and they believed, Diogenes in particular believed, that what they called paresis, or speaking truth to power, was one of the most important things that any truly decent person could do. Benjamin took this, uh, this uh, dictum uh, very directly to heart and believed that it was his moral responsibility to denounce slavery and to speak truth to powerful people in every circumstance he could. So this led to an endless series of confrontations in which he simply would not back down. And these were public confrontations, so he would appear in these Quaker meeting houses and, and denounce slave trading and slave owning by the, the people present. How was this uh, received by those in attendance? Benjamin always had the capacity to make people uh, nervous. And because in, in, in practically every meeting, he would draw a line. And he would say, here's the line. Are you for slavery? Are you against it? Which side are you on? There's no middle ground in this. And of course, people would, would argue with him. But he would, he, he, could ne he would never back down. He would always fight back. Uh, and eventually, as I said, this led to the wealthy disowning him. Benjamin was, uh, was much reviled and much disliked by the wealthier element. But as I've said, he had a lot of friends among the uh, ordinary common working Quakers. 
He also used various tactics that added to the intensity of his interventions. Can you tell us about some of those? Well, going back once again to Diogenes, one of the common features of the radicalism of that group of thinkers was the performance of their ideas in public. In other words, you have to live a certain way, you have to act a certain way, you have to embody your ideals in public action. This is, by the way, Sasha, what my generation of the 60s and 70s called guerrilla theater, uh, the acting out of uh, political conflicts in unlikely situations. So, uh, so, so Benjamin believed that the most important thing you could do would be to demonstrate to people exactly how fiercely you were opposed to slavery, and he would do this in various ways in public. Uh, one important story that's come down to us is that he went into the public market of Philadelphia one day, I think it was in 1742, with a set of fine china. And he began to explain that the tea grown by poor enslaved people in India and sweetened by the sugar harvested by poor enslaved people in the Caribbean, that this was a, a terrible thing and that people must not drink tea with sugar. And just as he's making this point, having set the teacups uh, on a table, he pulls a wooden mallet uh, out and starts smashing the teacups. And this is really expensive china. And people start screaming, Benjamin, stop, stop, sell me the china. Smash. And he smashes again. It actually caused a riot in which several young men uh, uh, grabbed Benjamin up and carried him away while other people took the china, uh, saved it from this so-called madman who wanted to destroy it. Uh, so this was, uh, this was one example. But the most famous moment of uh, expressing Benjamin's tactics for how to resist slavery took place in 1738 at a big annual meeting of Quakers in Burlington, New Jersey. Now, all of the men of renown, as they were called, the wealthy Quakers, they were all there. Benjamin uh, walks to Burlington, takes a, a strategic position near the slave owners. And uh, as uh, your listeners may know, Quakers do not have a formal minister. Uh, people speak as the spirit moves them. That's part of the egalitarianism of the English Revolution. And Benjamin waits his turn, and finally he uh, stands up and announces that uh, slave owning is the greatest sin in the world. Now, he has prepared himself for this moment by putting on underneath an overcoat a military uniform with a sword at his waist and a, inside a book he's placed an animal bladder with bright red pokeberry juice. Now, Quakers are pacifists. Okay, so when he throws off his overcoat to reveal the military uniform, there's a gasp in the audience. They can't believe this. Then he holds the book above his head and says, God will take vengeance against those people who enslave their fellow creatures. And he runs the sword through the Bible, and the fake blood comes gushing down his arm and he then begins sprinkling the blood on the bodies and heads of the slave owners nearby. The entire place breaks up in total pandemonium. And Benjamin just stands there as still as a statue with the, the blood dripping down his arm. Uh, and several men uh, grab him up and throw him out into the street. Uh, but this was exactly how Benjamin sought to get people's attention. And by the way, he knew that everybody was going to be talking about this event. This is how he spread the word of his belief in abolition. You do something outrageous and people will talk about it. Then they will hopefully debate the ideas. You're listening to Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. Today I'm joined by Marcus Rudiger. He's Distinguished Professor of Atlantic History at the University of Pittsburgh. He is the author, among many other books, 
of the fearless Benjamin Lay, the Quaker dwarf who became the first revolutionary abolitionist. He's also a collaborator with David Lester of the graphic novel Profit Against Slavery, which is also about Benjamin Lay at againstthegrain.org. You can find links to both of those books. So you mentioned, uh, Marcus, Benjamin Lay's focus on resisting slavery itself, but also not being complicit in the products of slavery and the consumption of the products of slavery. And I wanted to ask you about that, this idea of boycott and how, for him, it was connected to, since he had a pretty expansive worldview, um, also the exploitation of labor more generally, uh, including animals. Yes, now that, that's actually a very important point that you make, Sasha, because in many ways, Benjamin Lay invented this idea of complicity with slavery. And he was the first person, as far as we know, who engaged in a boycott of all products that were produced by uh, enslaved people, uh, tobacco, sugar, uh, anything like that. He said that if you consume those things, you are actually strengthening the institution of slavery that produced them. So, th so this is a very unusual thing for somebody to be doing in the 1730s. Now let's remember the anti-slavery movement wasn't very developed at that time. So Benjamin is, is, is pioneering tactics that will then become really crucial to uh, a, an anti-slavery movement that will expand in the later 18th century and then more dramatically uh, in the 19th century. But, but basically his idea, Sasha, was that this innocent looking commodity, like a cube of sugar, hides the violent circumstances under which it was produced. So Benjamin believed, and abolitionists will soon come to say, sugar is made with blood. So he's talking really about the labor behind the commodity. And so he believed that he had to find a way to live that was not exploiting anyone else's labor. So he, he lived in a cave. He made all of his own clothes. He uh, prepared all of his own food, he and Sarah. Uh, he lived in this very autonomous way so as to prevent exploitation, and that included animals because he believed that animals were exploited by human beings, and he would have agreed with Pythagoras, a man of famous theorem, that human beings will continue to slaughter each other as long as they slaughter animals. And so Benjamin was, uh, like any good Quaker, a pacifist, but he believed that this extended to, to all animal lives, that they too must not be exploited. And to give an example of how he practiced what he believed on that 20-mile trip uh, from Abington, PA, to Burlington for the Quaker meeting, uh, and anywhere else he went, he walked because he believed it wasn't right for human beings to ride horses and to exploit them in that way. So, so what we see is that Benjamin Lay had a, a deeply integrated radical worldview, uh, combining a radical view on questions of gender, questions of class, uh, animal rights, and also I would add the environment. Uh, Benjamin actually issued a warning in his book of 1738, beware rich men who poison the earth for gain. Now that folks is 1738, that sounds like it was said yesterday. So we do see what a, a forward thinker he was uh, and how he possessed many ideas that are still very valuable to us today. You just mentioned that as part of his expansive worldview, that it included an egalitarian view of gender. And I wanted to ask you more about that because you've noted that the Quakers in many ways were um, more egalitarian around gender, and yet the women sat in a different part of the meeting house than the men. How did Benjamin Lay grapple with such hierarchies? Well, he, he was always uh, resistant, and he would do uh, dramatic things like, for example, going and sitting in the, the women's section, a 
of the Quaker Meeting House. Uh, th that, was, that was one thing he did. Uh, we do know that he and Sarah had a very equal relationship. Uh, Benjamin wrote about how men and women were spiritually equal. Now, there were many kinds of patriarchy that persisted within the Quaker faith, but there were also some people, and especially women, who fought for these ideals within the Quaker movement. And that basically is what Benjamin was doing uh, regarding slavery. So there are internal struggles over race, class, and gender within the Quakers. Uh, and, and just to return for a moment to the, to the issue of slavery, Quakers began to debate that in America in 1688, and it took almost 100 years before they finally managed to make uh, slave owning something that Quakers would not do. It was 1776 by the time they did it. So on questions of gender, uh, class, and everything else, there are fights going on within the Quaker community uh, and Sarah and Benjamin were a significant part of those. Do we know if women were more open, uh, Quaker women, to criticism of Quaker involvement in slavery? I ask this because in Profit Against Slavery, David Lester, and this is the graphic novel about Benjamin Lay, often the characters who seem to be considering Benjamin Lay's positions considering his condemnation of slavery and the complicity of the Quakers in it, often are female characters. Yes, well, we don't have a lot of evidence from Quaker women on this subject, uh, although the Quakers were very good record keepers. But I think we can, we can be sure that women were very attentive to Benjamin's uh, message. We know this uh, from Sarah. We know that Sarah was herself uh, deeply networked into uh, Quaker groups of Quaker women who would travel uh, around Great Britain and actually uh, in North America and even internationally. So they become vectors of anti-slavery themselves. Uh, there's a very important woman named Susanna Morris who is kind of a matriarch of a Quaker family in Abington, Pennsylvania. She and Sarah were very close friends. I think she played a part. And then, of course, we see that as, as time goes on, in the late 18th and early 19th century, people like uh, Lucretia Mott and Amy Post uh, play very important roles in different kinds of activism moving forward. So the, the woman as a significant figure in public life is something that does emerge from Quakerism. In a, in a quite serious way. In 1738, Benjamin Franklin, who was a publisher, published a book by Lay. Can you tell us about the relationship of Franklin to Benjamin Lay and about Lay's book? Benjamin wrote a book that was most unconventional called uh, All Slave Keepers Who Hold the Innocent in Bondage Apostates, meaning, translation, Christians can't own slaves, and if you do, you're an apostate to the religion. You're violating the fundamental truths. So he wrote this book, which is, a, I must admit, a very strange book. It's uh, one part uh, a polemic against slavery. It's one part autobiography. It's one part a commonplace book in which Benjamin writes down notes about the things he's reading. And of course, that's tremendously useful to a historian. Uh, Benjamin did not have a great deal of education, and when he finished writing this book, he took it to Benjamin Franklin's print shop, and Benjamin Franklin was uh, at least receptive, and he began to read this manuscript and saw that it was really uh, unorthodox, to say the least, and he says, how am I supposed to publish this? And the story is that Benjamin Lay says, well, I don't care, put the pages in any order you want, just publish it and I'll pay you to do so. And Franklin was willing to do that even though the book contained these very sharp rebukes of wealthy Quakers who at that time controlled the Pennsylvania government and on whom Benjamin Franklin depends for quite a bit of his business. So Benjamin Franklin does apparently help with the editing of the document because the the, the Several of the entries are dated and they're not in chronological order, so my guess is that Franklin tried to help 
lay uh, figure out the best way to present this. Uh, the book is published in 1738, but Franklin did something uh, very interesting. And normally, anybody who's seen a title page from an 18th century book will notice at the bottom, it will say, printed by Benjamin Franklin for the author or something like that. Uh, Benjamin Franklin published the book, but he left his own name as the printer off the book. And uh, he was right to do that because it caused an upheaval. It infuriated the wealthy Quakers, some of whom Benjamin uh, said were doing the work of the devil with their slave owning and their corruption of the faith. So Franklin did, uh, now Franklin was himself a slave owner at this time though. So there's a very interesting uh, question uh, about how Benjamin Lay would have responded to that. There is one story about Benjamin that survived of him going to visit a distinguished gentleman in Philadelphia, unnamed, we don't know who it was, but I think it might have been Franklin. He's invited to eat breakfast with the family. He sits down and when an enslaved person shows up at the door with a tray of food to bring into the dining room, Benjamin looks at this gentleman and says, do you keep slaves in your family? And the person says, uh, yes, I do. And Benjamin pushes back his chair and says, I will not partake of this unrighteousness. And he walks out. Now, I can't prove it, but I've always wondered if that wasn't Franklin. I'm speaking with historian Marcus Rediger, author of The Fearless Benjamin Lay, The Quaker Dwarf Who Became the First Revolutionary Abolitionist. And that book is the basis for the graphic novel Prophet Against Slavery with David Lester. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. So Benjamin Lay died in 1759. How in the last years of his life was there a shift among Quakers and what did it look like? As it happened, Sasha, the Quaker slave owners who were Benjamin's greatest enemies uh, began to die in the 1750s and a younger generation of leaders came to the fore, many of them having been influenced by Benjamin and another abolitionist named Anthony Benazet. Uh, John Woolman is also part of this. So there begins to be a rethinking of Quaker doctrine on the question of slavery. Uh, and the first big step is taken in 1758 when the Philadelphia Yearly Meeting, now this was the bastion of Benjamin's enemies. This was the most powerful group. The Philadelphia Yearly Meeting ruled that Quakers could not participate in the slave trade. And this was a very big first step. And when Benjamin got the news, living in his cave, a young Quaker came to tell him, uh, he knew that this was the beginning of the end. And lo and behold, it would take another uh, 18 years before Quakers would finally say that uh, slave owning is forbidden within the faith. He knew that he had won. And I think this was a very deeply satisfying uh, piece of knowledge that he gained. So in 1776, Quakers were the first group to abolish slavery amongst themselves. And then in the 1780s, anti-slavery movements started to form, so several decades after Benjamin Lay's death. How do you understand the links between Benjamin Lay's activism and these movements? Well, we know that Benjamin had a huge impact on them because one of the leading abolitionists of the 1790s, uh, Benjamin Rush, the physician and Enlightenment figure abolitionist, Benjamin Rush, uh, who was, by the way, the first biographer of Benjamin Lay, said that a great many people in Philadelphia had a picture of Benjamin Lay put up in their homes. So this was a, this was a, uh, an engraving that had been made by his friends after he had died. So he actually epitomized this struggle against slavery and people were glad to know that it had actually been going on for a long time by the 1790s. This gave it more credibility. This gave it depth. Uh, Benjamin Lay was part of the genealogy. 
but I do think that the primary way that Benjamin I, Benjamin's ideas were transmitted to the next generation was by word of mouth, by people who knew him, by people who had heard his stories. Uh, later Quaker anti-slavery activists began collecting those stories. A man named uh, Roberts Vaux publishes a uh, short biography of Lay in 1815. He had gone around and talked to older Quakers and gathered up stories about Benjamin Lay. So he kind of enters the folklore, not only of the Quaker community, but of this nascent anti-slavery movement. Uh, and I think he did have quite a significant effect, not only uh, in the young United States, but in Great Britain because the writings of Lay and Anthony Benizet affected people like Thomas Clarkson, who was a leading figure in, the, in abolitionism on that side. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that, because in 1808, the British Parliament abolishes the slave trade. So to what degree did Benjamin Lay's ideas loop back to Britain? I think they definitely loop back, and probably the clearest way to make that uh, point is that uh, when the, uh, a group of 12 gentlemen met uh, to form the Society to Effect the Abolition of the Slave Trade, uh, this was, I think, in 1787, uh, a majority of them were Quakers. And these were people who would have known about Benjamin Lay, probably knew his book, knew all the stories about him. So the, the ideas were active and present at the very inception of the abolitionist organization that would eventually have the success of uh, getting rid of the slave trade in 1807-1808. And wasn't the tactic of boycott a crucial one for the abolition of the slave trade? Absolutely. This becomes uh, one of the most important tactics uh, in the 19th century. Uh, it's something that uh, becomes very widespread. It's part of what's called the free produce movement in which slave labor is pitted against free labor. And uh, it does become a, a major source of strength and organizing within the abolitionist movement. Benjamin did it first. Well, I want to ask you a bit more about uh, Lay's tactics because certainly people in his day thought of him as more than a bit extreme. And yet, looking back at his impact, and your writings on Benjamin Lay, it seems like one would conclude that the forcefulness of his tactics and his willingness to lay things out in absolutely harsh terms was part of what made both him, but even his successors, ultimately successful. Benjamin Lay was an agitator. I think this is actually something that progressive forces don't fully appreciate uh, in terms of its importance. Benjamin saw every public meeting as an opportunity to agitate, to, to basically make people feel uncomfortable so that they will be forced to think. Uh, and this is something he did with tremendous success. And of course, that created opposition. That created the, the, the people, the group of people who sought to disown him. But it also created uh, a, a counter tendency in which uh, lots of people began to think, you know, he's right. He's right. We're breaking the golden rule. We shouldn't be doing this. So I think uh, his, his tactics of speaking truth to power uh, really was a very big part of his success. Why has Benjamin Lay been forgotten until recently and, and remembered, in fact, um, partially because of your scholarship. I think a lot of it has to do with the waning of the abolitionist movement in the 19th century and the rise of white supremacy, frankly, uh, such that abolitionist heroes like Benjamin Lay were quite conveniently forgotten. Uh, I also think that the Quakers themselves bear some responsibility uh, for Benjamin's uh, disappearance from history, his erasure from history, you might say, because they waged a campaign of repression. Uh, that, I think, was very significant. And then, finally, historians have told a certain kind of story about abolition, and it didn't include people like Benjamin, people, uh, he was from the wrong class, he didn't have the right body type, uh, he was someone who used 
tactics that were just too radical, too militant. Uh, and uh, I must say, even a, a famous historian like David Brian Davis, uh, he referred to Benjamin Lay as a demented little hunchback. Uh, if that's not a, a way of dismissing somebody's importance, I don't know what is. But it turns out that uh, Benjamin, we now know, was an extremely important figure at this crucial moment uh, in, in the rise of an abolitionist movement. And I do think he's a, a much better hero for our time than uh, slave owners from the past. Well, let me end with this question. If you had to situate Benjamin Lay from the vantage point of the present, would you describe him as a religious communist? And if so, do you think that might be also part of why history, official history, forgot Benjamin Lay? I think there's definitely some truth in that characterization. He, you know, there is this tradition of Christian communism. Uh, it actually is still alive today in certain communities. And I think Benjamin uh, certainly reached back to the English Revolution, to groups like the Diggers who wanted to recreate uh, communal life on communal lands. I think Benjamin speaks to us today uh, because of his uh, interest in the commons. So I think there, there is definitely a strong resonance here. But, uh, but, but the other thing I'd say about Benjamin is that uh, he was a very eclectic thinker who combined all kinds of radical ideas. I've already mentioned the Cynic philosophers and Diogenes. Uh, and this was one of the most important things, Sasha, in writing this book, to show how a man with relatively little education put together this deeply revolutionary critique of the world that he lived in. You know, so my book about Benjamin Lay really is a kind of intellectual history from below. And to learn to think with him uh, and through him, I think, is something that could be very profitable for our times. Marcus, thank you so much. My pleasure. Good to be with you. I've been speaking with Marcus Redeker. He's Distinguished Professor of Atlantic History at the University of Pittsburgh, author of many books, including The Slave Ship, Villains of All Nations, and The Many-Headed Hydra. He is the author of The Fearless Benjamin Lay, The Quaker Dwarf, who became the first revolutionary abolitionist. That's published by Beacon Press. And Beacon has also published the graphic novel Profit Against Slavery, by David Lester, for which Marcus Rediger was a collaborator. You've been listening to Against the Grain. I'm Sasha Lilly. Thanks so much for listening, and please tune in again next time 